From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers, I'm Tim White. This week, interviews with two public figures who have faced adversity in the last year. Later on in the show, my colleague Ted Nisi talked to former Care New England CEO, Dr. James Finale, who is diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Finale has recently published a book about being a doctor turned patient and what he wants other medical professionals to know about his experience. But first, my conversation with Superior Court Judge Richard Leach. You may remember in February, Leach was crossing Smith Street in Providence when he was struck by a Jeep and nearly lost his life. After six months of hospital stays, surgeries and recovery, Leach returned to the bench in August. He talks about the unexpected help he received to make that happen. Here now is my interview with Richard Leach. Judge Leach, thank you for taking the time. Appreciate Thanks it. for having me, Tim. So, how are you feeling? I'm doing a lot better. I'm really a lucky guy. I'm lucky to be alive. And um, I fought hard, had the help of a lot of people to get better, and not 100% yet. I'm, quote, fully recovered, but I'll get there. But uh, I at least can work and I can drive. And those two important things. You're back on the bench. <laughs> yes. Um, let's go back to the accident itself. What do you remember from that night? Fortunately or unfortunately, and most people tell me fortunately, I don't remember anything. Really? I don't. I, I remember waking up in the hospital two days later after I'd had emergency surgery on my leg. I had sur two surgeries later that I do remember, but I, didn't, I don't remember what, what happened that night and for a day or so after. What was the last thing you remember? I remember getting out of my car and starting to walk. I was walking to the train station. I was parked um, <clears throat> behind the, uh, I call it the registry building, for those of your listeners who are old enough to remember it's the it. Department of Transportation <laughs> but it's now building. the Department of yeah. Transportation building. Uh, I was parked behind there and I was walking down to the train station and I had done this many, many times and I had the same pattern and for some reason, a different thing happened, uh, but the woman, I've only read the police report, and the police report says that she didn't break, and I got thrown 35 feet. 35 feet. Yes. There's a, I'm sure you've seen the images yes. from that accident. My famous shoes. Well, right. There's that troubling picture of your shoe in, on the ground, and you were thrown from your own shoes. When you look at that photo or see the video on, on the news, what, what goes through your mind? I don't know how I survived. That's what goes through my mind. Yeah. And uh, I did, and I did because of the help of so many people, particularly my wife and my family, but, uh, and great medical care, I have to say that. I talked to many people in, in law enforcement, part of my job, and I have to tell you that that night I was told it did, it did not look good for you. That was the phone call I was, the phone calls I was getting. Um, do you know now just how dire it was that night? Only from my wife who was teaching at Boston University Law School and had to drive to Rhode Island Hospital for over an hour not knowing how I was. And she had gotten calls uh, from the media, not, not from the media, from family members and from friends who, and she tried to reach the hospital and they wouldn't tell her anything 
because you can say you're next of kin, but they don't know that over the phone. And so uh, until she saw me, uh, she didn't know how I was doing. That must have been hell. That, yeah, that was real hell for her. Yeah. You know, without, without getting into private medical stuff, can you describe your injuries? And, and sure. Um, one, uh, I had a <coughs> shattered, not fractured, shattered femur. And I didn't know this before, but the femur is the largest bone in your body. And they had to put a rod from my knee to my hip and, and my right leg uh, to hold the femur in place. I had six vertebrae that had to be fused. Uh, two had been fused in prior back operations. And the hardware got mangled, and they had to remove it and then refuse it, and then they did four more. And then the other thing is I had a brain bleed and a uh, concussion, and they had to drain that. Was that the scariest of all? That's the scariest thing. When somebody says they're going to touch your head, you know, elbows, knees, legs, but when they say they're going to touch your head, that was scary. What scared you the most about it? That I'd still be the same person cognitively after as I was before, and luckily I am. You went to Rhode Island Hospital first. Um, have you since talked to any of the emergency medical personnel? That no, no, I talked to a couple of state policemen who were there and were helpful, uh, but I haven't been able, I don't know who drove the ambulance, and I have talked to the doctors who treated me, and they were wonderful. The, the person who hit you, have you talked to that no. person? Do you harbor any ill will? No, there's no, no point. You're not angry? No, I'm upset that it happened, but it happened. I, there's nothing I can do about it, so I had a choice. I could be depressed about it or upset about it, or you can get better. And I said, I might as well get better because a lot of people were rooting for me and that made a difference. And before we get to that, uh, kind of a prickly question. Were you in a crosswalk when you were? To be honest, no. Do you cross that area differently now? I haven't done it yet. Is that? I haven't. I almost did it the other day and there's a long reason why it's not worth going through. But the, uh, so I had to park somewhere else. But I, was a little, there was a little bit of trepidation in my mind of going back to the scene and having doing it again. I'm sure. I will tell you, I am extraordinarily careful now crossing the street. You, you do cross the street differently now. Yes. I was in um, recently where there was, you know, the lights where they tell you how many seconds you have to cross. Sure. And I was with my wife and we were crossing at a crosswalk and the light said six seconds and she started to walk and I said, no, come back. <laughs> and a few years ago you probably would oh, have so If there was one second, I probably would have uh, ventured. <laughs> so let's talk about the journey of your recovery. Um, when did you take the bench again? Uh, August 15th, full time. I made some WebEx calls and other things. Were you ready? Yes, I think I did. I, um, I had this big case that was supposed to start uh, originally June 5th and it got continued to September 11th. I was ready to have the trial start. We brought the jury in uh, to fill out a questionnaire and then that night I got a call that they settled. But the thing is, 
will you say was I ready? I thought I was ready, and I think it's the lawyers will have to judge it, judge me. But I think I didn't lose my fastball. I felt comfortable. Uh, I was able to ask questions, answer. I mean, understand the issues. So I I, I felt good about it. As the as you lifted from the fog, I guess, um, what is your understanding as to the outreach you and your family received during that time? It was amazing. First of all, so I'll publicly thank everybody who communicated with me because uh, I didn't respond to everybody. But when I finally did look at my phone, and I think that wasn't until I got home from the hospital, it was a month, I had so many emails and texts uh, that as I say, thank you to everyone out there who may have sent them if I didn't respond and thank them. Plus, I got cards and letters from people I didn't even know, but I'm so grateful for those as well. That gave me the energy and the attitude to get better. I would, if you had asked me before this happened, intellectually I would have said, you either heal or you don't heal or something like that. No, your attitude uh, matters, and I had the right attitude because people were rooting for me, and I felt not only did I owe it to myself, but I owed it to them to do everything I could to get better. So I'm so grateful to those people out there, some, many of whom I know, uh, but some, actually many that I didn't know. Did <laughs> still that surprise don't. you? Yes, it surprised me. And, and it sounds like it helped? Oh yeah, it helped tremendously. Uh, and the bag next to you yeah. is just, this, I mean, you talk about text messages and yeah. emails. But this is a bag, I don't know if you can see it, those are all cards and letters. Hundreds of cards, hundreds. Uh, and can I talk about one? Yeah, so one stood out to you? Yeah, a number stood out. I got one, for example, from a former juror and lots of dear friends and other acquaintances. But this is the one that really touched me. Now, they all touched me, but this was the one. That, it's, uh, I happen to be Jewish, yes. but it's a prayer for healing, a St. Jude's prayer. And I think prayers help no matter what your religion is, so they help me. Uh, so I knew what St. Jude was, so it's a nice card with a prayer, but then there's this note. Could you read it? Yes. I'm really sorry to learn of your accident. Just the other day, I was teasing you about coming into the store when I wasn't working. My prayers for you are for a speedy recovery, and the road to that recovery is a smooth one. Prayers also to your family. Hope to see you in the store soon. Sincerely, your favorite CVS cashier, Middletown, Rhode Island, Melanie. P.S. I googled your address. Hope it's correct. So this is a... This is a woman who I did not know her name. Um, I didn't know she knew my name and that she took the time to do this. Those are the things that made it possible for me to get better. Have you since had a chance to thank her? I did. I went to the store and I found her and I thanked her and I couldn't thank her enough. You know, I think I speak for a lot of people that... Uh, after the news that night, which was very scary, it is great to be sitting here with you right now and seeing you in good health and back on the bench. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And I, people will come up to me and it's, it's so great to see you. And my response, it's great to be seen. <laughs>
When we come back, former hospital executive Dr. James Finale and his battle with stage four lung cancer and how that has reshaped how he thinks about the medical field. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. For years, Dr. James Finale was one of Rhode Island's top healthcare leaders, but now Finale himself is the patient fighting an aggressive form of cancer. Ted Nisi visited Finale at his home to discuss his medical battle. Jim, thanks for sitting down with me uh, to talk about this new book of yours and the experience you're going through now. Um, and you're very honest in this, so. I want to be honest with my questions too, and I, I no doubt uh, you'll be honest back. First question, a very basic one. How do you feel today? I feel okay. You know, people say, you know, boy, you look good. If I look good, I wonder who doesn't. But uh, <laughs> all joking aside, I feel pretty good. Um, uh, the overbearing effects of the treatment is this overwhelming fatigue and some neuropathic changes, sometimes nausea. So I, I would say not no day is really a great day, except that you're alive. But there are parts of days that are good. Usually the mornings are pretty good. So before we talk, dive in about your experience, what you've gone through, um, I want to talk about why, why you decided to write a book. Um, you know, I think clearly you felt a motivation to share your story, but I want to let you tell that. Why, what, when did you first think, I'm sure it took a little while because you were dealing with the enormity of what you were going through. When did you have the light bulb moment that said, I think I'm going to write a book about this? About a month or two into it. Um, all this was new to me. And I said, you know, I've been a clinician, a physician, seeing patients, really sick patients, for 40-plus years. And I thought I knew everything. All the stuff. I always kept contact with my patients. I'd call them when they were ill. And that bond was really great. I didn't realize what they went through until I started going through it. So I said to myself, I don't think a lot of providers, unless their families have gone through this, have experienced this. So I don't think they knew what it was like. So I said to myself, the reason to write it wasn't just to write it, was just hopefully use it for providers, medical students, residents, and other physicians and other providers to say, this is what they go through. So we send you to the oncologist, okay, great, but all the stuff you go through, I was totally unprepared for. So that, that was the motivation behind it. All right, let's, let's dive in. Take me back to March 22nd, 2022. Uh, why were you concerned about your health that day and how did it play out? So for a couple of months, I had this cough and felt okay. So I went to ENT because that's usually what caused the cough. I had a chest x-ray, had a workup and a nasal endoscopy. And the chest specialist said they showed a pulmonary artery on edge. Please get a CT. So I'm sitting there going, well, radiologists always want to get extra tests, right? And I ignored it. And, but I was feeling pretty well. Every once in a while during the day, I felt a little lousy. And I took a motion. And I felt better. So how could it be? I had some headaches. I actually had an MRI in my brain because I thought there was something wrong. I had blood tests. Everything was normal. Cough got a little better. So I remember calling the cardiologist that I'd seen for these skip beats. I said, could you tell me if I need to have this CAT scan? And he said, yeah, I think you should. So I go to Kennedy in the morning, get a CAT scan, and my chart's wonderful. I come back to my office, I looked up the result, and I see this thing, right lower low mass, necrotic nodes, post-obstruction pneumonia. So I had 
cancel the lung that spread to lymph nodes. And I'm reading this report. And the rest of us sit down in an office with a doctor who takes out the chart, shows us, and tells us what it means. You are a doctor. Yeah. So you open your own chart, you're alone. Yeah. And you had to read your own chart to yourself. I, I, I freaked out. I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was always healthy. Why? I mean, I, I probably cried. I might have yelled. I had the door closed. I, I mean, I was stunned. I'm going to ask directly. When you saw that chart, did you say to yourself, I'm going to die? Yeah. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago, and you know this about with your mom, right? 20 years ago, um, stage four, non-small cell lung cancer, you lived 10 months. Not knowing about, specifically about all the new advances, that is the construct in which I lived. I said to myself, it's 10 months. And I couldn't get out of my brain. I, and people said, oh, I've had four years and this has been great. I said, no. I couldn't get that. I mean, even when we went Christmas shopping and my wife wanted to buy me this shirt, I'm saying, I'm never going to wear the damn thing. I'm going to be dead. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's changed about this kind of cancer that has allowed you not just to be sitting in front of me a year and a half later, long past 10 months, but actually with, with all the caveats that you need to include, yeah. some degree of health? Yeah, I, I think um, I didn't start to believe that there's a longer life because there's only one thing I asked for time, right? Um, and even when we went through the first course of therapy and it stopped working after three courses, I'm looking, then I, it reinforced my belief. And then there's this one specific clinical trial that this thoracic oncologist had been waiting for. It was there. He was kind of positive about it. I mean, we were down in the dumps, right? So when was this roughly? It was September. Um, August to September, I think, of 22. We went to the Mass General. The trial I signed up for was a crappy trial. I knew it wasn't going to work. But this other one seemed to be promising the far. But we were looking at trials in Hopkins and New York. And, but So this was open to suggest we started. And then we started seeing um, growth in the abdominal disease decrease immediately after the first six weeks of treatment. So it's every other week. And that continued to decline. And so every six weeks, we'd get a CAT scan. You know, As I said, anxiety would come, but it was good. It was good until like six weeks ago when something else has cropped up. But um, then I started thinking, there's another trial that was ready to go that had a more specific treatment for what I have. So we know what the next step is. So I got to get a little more optimistic. I made it actually it's 19 months this week. And I know if I'm off this trial someday, because I will be when it stops working, because it's not if it when, I know, we know what the next option is. So I guess it's 19 months still here. I think we're not, we've not become optimists. We've become realists. Do they have any idea how you got this? Why you would have gotten this? Not at all. Were you a smoker or Never. anything like that? Never. Because, yeah, I think people hear lung cancer, they assume smoking. But no. I said, I don't think he was no. never a smoker to never. my knowledge. That's why it gets to be the why me. Mm -hmm. What did I do? To, I thought I always a good, good <laughs> maybe not everybody agrees, but I always, tried to do, I always tried to do the right thing. And always, you know, I had to get over that. I, I only think of that about 5% of the time now. I always hate when people overly uh, sentimentalize getting sick yeah. uh, and, and being very sick. Uh, but as someone going through it, 
I have to imagine it makes you appreciate everything in a different way. Is that fair to say? It's absolutely fair to say. I mean, uh, I don't worry about the little things. Not at all. Who cares? Um, and I try to appreciate all the good stuff, right? So let's talk more about uh, the other motivation for the book you talked about, which was your message to other clinicians, other doctors, students, everybody in the provider community, basically, who deals with uh, sick patients. You, you write at one point in the book, quote, no one ever taught us what our patients go through. Uh, what do you mean by that? Physicians and providers and NPs, et cetera, they order lots and lots of tests. Well, I always was sort of on the conservative side. You know, going through multiple tests all the time with needles stuck in your arm 23 times and another scan and another scan, do you have any clue as what that does to you? I mean, you go to a CT scan, which are great because they're quick. You know, take your trousers down below your knees. Okay, that sounds great. But MRIs are miserable, right? And in the last 18 months, I've had 15 or 20 of them. So I think before you order this, please make sure you understand, it ain't rosy. It takes two to three hours out of your day, and you wait and wait and wait. I try to say to like a resident or a student, I want you to go to MR, or a, a, a CT scan with contrast where you have to go wait in line, drink the stuff, sit an hour. Go, I mean, it takes an extraordinary amount of time and patience. One thing I've never had was patience, okay? So that was the message, is think about what you're ordering, and when you send your patients for these treatments, understand what they're going through. Like I said, visits, 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 wait, wait. Man, we, we go in every Tuesday, every other Tuesday, and we get in about 6, we get out about noon. Most of the time we spend waiting for stuff, waiting for labs to come back, waiting for the visit, waiting for the chemo to get mixed. We wait two hours plus for the chemo. The chemo infusion is not the problem. But I think understanding how much time it takes out of patients and family, how much anxiety these tests, and how much discomfort they are. It sounded like, though, uh, it also goes beyond tests, right? Um, that, uh, you know, the doctors, and it, I will say, you know, on the one hand, you always hear doctors are always told about their bedside manner and the need to be caught. And I've, of course, like everyone, I've had wonderful doctors who mm. were, couldn't have been more patient and kind in a difficult situation. Um, but you clearly feel like as someone who's been on the inside of the medical system, more can be done. Yeah, not all of them are like that. Uh, I would say today much more than before. I used to uh, send patients to physicians that were just rotten, miserable all the time. And I remember the surgeon I was sent to, and I'd said, I have to say to my patients, really, listen, you have a complicated thing. He's the best guy, technician around, but half the time he's a jerk. Why do you have to apologize for that? People will say, you know, if you're clinically good, that's all that matters. No. It's you got to be communicative and nice because they deserve it. It's just a better relationship. So I'm used to the past where everybody didn't think they, they, could, they didn't have to be nice. That's part of being a, a, a clinician. So that's the point I'm trying so it's to not, make. So it's not to you an extra or nice to have. You think it should be no, mandatory for all the physicians to yeah, try to Yeah, absolutely. Do. It's a mandatory. You know, I used to say, you know, you had a bad day, everybody gets a bad day. But I think your patients are having a worse day. Any basic advice to patients and their families who might see this story and think, I, I, I feel that. Yes, Dr. Finale, I, I can't get a call back or I... I don't feel like I'm, and I shouldn't say working the system, but managing my way through the system as well as I could. Is there any, any tips, anything you think people yeah, should know? 
Yeah, I think it's always good. It's very hard to answer this question, but it's always good to have an advocate of some kind that can work the system for you. If you have some, unfortunate, you probably, everybody knows somebody that works somewhere in the system. And sometimes playing that card is the right thing to do. Um, pushing your physician to be a little more responsive is always a good thing. And having them advocate for you. But a lot of times they're just, you know, they'll tell their uh, assistant, schedule a CAT scan, I need it. And they'll find out it's three weeks. And they're sitting there going, oh, I wanted it next week. And they got it in three weeks. I know even now when I get a CAT scan scheduled for a certain time, I said, I think they wanted it before then. Uh, not that I want, but they want it before the next visit. So I think having an advocate and know something about the healthcare system is fine. It's kind of find a friend. Last question. Uh, you've a lot on your plate right now. What keeps you going day to day? Uh, my wife, um, Deb, and my family because uh, still got things we want to do. Um, she says, well, don't just keep living for yourself. I'm not actually living for myself. If it was up to me. I don't know what I would do. Okay, there are downtimes of the side effects. You go, this is it's just worth it, right? And you feel sorry for yourself. I don't think that helps. But you know, I think people that need to understand. For me, she, my daughter, my sons—that's what keeps me going. And it's a, a bunch of friends that we've sort of accumulated over the time that keeps you going. Finale's book is available on Amazon. He says all the proceeds will be donated to the Dana-Farber Dana Cancer Institute. On the first half, Superior Court Judge Richard Leach and his recovery from a frightening accident in February. You can catch that on WPRI.com. We'll be back after uh, Thanksgiving, so I hope everyone has a happy and healthy holiday. I am thankful to you, our Newsmakers viewer. Thanks for watching. I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.